Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. Well, my friend, I'm here, Dave Popwich, Rob Geary. Uh, we've got another, uh, I think, a really important show, uh, an interesting show to do today. There's a couple of things. We're going to deal with a little bit of financial and a little bit of lifestyle stuff. Um, I've spoken on this topic regularly around uh, dementia and the effect that it has had on uh, my family. Mm -hmm. And we've got some additional resources uh, that we're going to bring to bear. And it turns out that, you know, up to one in three Canadians are going to be impacted by dementia. And I don't mean that they're going to get dementia, but they'll know somebody that has dementia and it will impact their life. Um, The the numbers are staggering. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to make sure that from a financial perspective, from a healthcare perspective, from an emotional perspective, that we're ready to deal with this this particular affliction. And a question that you and I get asked all the time, is do I defer my pension benefits like CPP and OAS? It's a daily one. It is a daily one, and it's a confusing topic for yeah. people. Um, and so we're going to bring on a recurring guest that we've had for uh, on the show for years, Fred Batiste, and he's going to talk a little bit about uh, the deferral of OAS because he's been a bit ambivalent on on the deferral from sixty five to seventy, taking it sixty five to seventy. But he's less ambivalent right now, <laughs> and we want to find out why. So we're going to talk about that. So stick. Stick around for that. Now, um, in segment uh, in this segment, we often just talk a little bit about uh, about markets and you know what we're we're talking about um, with clients. And and here's I'm going to set the uh, set the scene, and I want you to, to 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 give me your comments on this. One of the things that I'm I'm hearing uh, from people now is ex- exhaustion. Mm-hmm. So we had the first six months of this year with June being bad, you know, market crash scary. Then we had a bit of a summer reprieve with a rally for the next six weeks, turned a little negative again in, in August. And we, you know, here, here we are today, right? And the conversation I'm having with people is, oh, I just, I feel exhausted, right? Right. Things just don't seem to be getting better. Talk to me about, about what's happening in the markets and what, what you're seeing or, or clients are feeling, people are feeling at this time. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been a, it's been a year. Yeah. Right. It's been a last I think you said it. We were we hit we hit all time highs at the at the end of January. Yeah. And of this and, year, yeah. And things have, have come off. Yeah. Right. Um, it's come off over eight months and there has been continued news sources and things feels like on a daily basis that is a lot of doom and gloom. And when do we get out of this? And for us, we've been through these cycles. Yes. But for a lot of individuals, it's been it's been longer. This has been a longer process, and and this sense of time was different from yeah. from the years prior. Well, you know that that's a really interesting point. Let's let's talk about that because people's most recent experience with a pullback was in in March of 2020 when the pandemic really broke. Right, mm-hmm. late February, early March. Um, you had a very interesting conversation with a client who completely didn't remember, like. You said, do you right. remember what happened in that period? And no, no recollection of it. And we started talking about that and thinking about that. And that particular pullback was very short-lived, wasn't it? Right. Because of the stimulus response to it, S&P, if memory serves me correct, was down 35% right. at one point. I don't think the S&P has been down more than 23% in this most recent uh, pullback. So it was much steeper, a much further decline that we saw in March of 2020. But the difference is 
is it snapped back relatively quickly because of central bank and government response to the pandemic? It was a blink of an eye. It was the blink of an eye, all things considered. And so this that, that, that word exhaustion that I used, I used intentionally because the last time that we've experienced a, drawn, a, a regular uh, sort of recessionary drawn out uh, economic cycle was back in 2008-09. Right. And, and, and that's long forgotten by investors, right? So what we're experiencing right now, I would say, is a, is a more normal economic response to, to the cycle, right? We go... We always go through cycles, right? You get booming uh, markets and economies, and then things roll over, and we have recessions, and then things start again. They're all cycles. But this one, it's been a long time since people have felt what we're feeling right now. Right. And I think some of the exhaustion comes from one of the main pieces that we talk about on a daily basis right now, which is inflation, the word, the R word, recession, right? And we feel like we're in a waiting pattern. I think that's what's drawing this this period of time out as well, where we're going, there's a lot of, we're waiting for the next data point. Correct. And that's it. Right. Well, and, 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 it, and the process has to play itself out, right? The, um, you know, central banks have taken some aggressive action on interest rate increases. Now we have to let that play out. Now, interest rate increases can take sort of six months mm -hmm. to play itself out. And so when you think about that, oh my God, the exhaustion of, okay, is inf has inflation peaked in June? And well, a trend isn't a single data point, as you said, it's going to take a few. So now we've got months to go through before it's confirmed. And that's the cycle we're in. Now that's, that's a normal cycle, yep. right? This is a normal cycle. It's just that we have not been in a normal cycle, I would argue, um, for, for, you know, probably 2809. I mean, we're yep. talking 10, 12, 13 years ago that people, and there's no way if they don't remember what happened in March of 2020, that people remember how they felt going through that particular cycle, right? right. So I, I really, I get that emotional response to this thing, the exhaustion and, and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, it is, it is interesting to look at the economic uh, data. The, the problem is that data can't overcome emotion, right? Right. So I, I suppose we're in a privileged position that we're, we're researching all day long, every day. Uh, we know what historical cycles have done. We look at the data, we compare it. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, I suppose that, that helps us, not just as advisors, but as investors, okay? We can calm ourselves and we can get people through it. But when you're looking at the headlines, that's scary, Yeah. right? And then this thing drags on for months and months and months. And, and there's where you start to just get worn down, right? right. And you and and we and we listen. We talk to lots of people, and um, you got to you got to avoid trying to slip going down that rabbit hole of catastrophic thinking, right? Right, because it's easy to do that when you're exhausted. Things will never get better. And, and uh, I would say that the the two the word catastrophic, everyone goes to again yeah. that R word of recession. And recession Good is point. okay. That's. That's worst case scenario. Recession means that we're all going to lose our houses. Everyone's going to lose their jobs and everything, right? And we feel like we're waiting for that to happen. Right. Data's come in. Data came in last week on on Canadian job numbers, right? Mm -hmm. And the unemployment is rising, but we're slowing. But that doesn't mean that it is catastrophic whatsoever. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I, I, you got to be careful too. You got to use the data. You've got to remain balanced and you've got to have a base case scenario, yeah. but you do need to plan for if it's better than you expect or worse than you expect, right? That's prudent planning. Right. Um, but, but the catastrophic thinking can drive very emotional decision-making, which doesn't always, um, in fact, rarely matches reality and therefore can, can create problems. So, you know, I think it's important, you know, we're going to, we're going to actually put on a community session 
for clients and friends talking about behavioral finance because mm -hmm. it's an important piece for people, right? Again, the data and the emotion are two different things and it's really difficult for data to overcome emotion. And so we actually need to address the emotional side of, of investing because you've got to keep that in check to avoid the big problems that people can create for themselves. And the timing mechanism right now in the last six months, and you're starting to think about retirement, yep. which a lot more people in the yep. country are. Well, that's right. That's what that, that's what that jobs data said, yep. didn't it? It did. Yep. There's a lot more people, 54 to 65, right, that right. are thinking about this. Right. Or they're so, tired. They've gone through the pandemic. Yep. They just, I don't want to go back. Yep. Right. You're going to see yep. a wave of retirements. Uh, hitting the the Canadian, well, the North American and perhaps Western uh, Europe as well. And not just economic, the demographic is going to continue. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Um, Rob, you know, we, we touch on this topic um, reasonably frequently mm -hmm. uh, throughout the year. Uh, this is a topic that's personal to me. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got your own personal experiences, right. uh, perhaps that you'll share through the course of this. But we wanted to talk a little bit about the impact uh, of dementia um, how it affects families, how to be aware of it, what you can do, what support resources are available, because unfortunately it's becoming a bigger and bigger challenge for many families, right, right? in in Calgary and in Canada uh, on a broader basis. We've got a terrific guest to help us understand uh, this uh, this topic and the resources are available and what families can do. We're, uh, we're happy to have Kim Brundrett with us today. She's a collective impact lead of the Dementia Network Calgary. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, maybe we could just set the stage a little bit uh, and talk a little bit about what the Dementia Network is and what it's, you know, wh why does it exist? What is it designed to do? Yeah, so we're, we're a group of people and organizations, um, including public, private and nonprofit, uh, that are working collaboratively to make Calgary a place where people impacted by dementia can live life well. So essentially, we are passionate people who are primarily, you know, we've got, we've got caregivers, we've got people impacted by dementia, we've got people from government, we've got um, facilities, uh, researchers, geriatricians, and, and we're all kind of trying to come at this from different lenses to, to see how we can improve the lives of people impacted by dementia. Well, maybe let's talk about this. As I said in the outset, it's a personal story for me. My family has uh, been impacted uh, by this uh, with my mom, um, and, Cal and she's in Calgary here. And I have to say, uh, I think Calgary is doing, and the facilities here are doing a fantastic job as far as I'm concerned with my mom's care. But I'd like to get a sense, maybe we can frame out um, the, the, the validity to which I said more and more families are becoming um, impacted by this. So I don't know if that's a true statement or if it's a general statement, but I, I suspect that you have an idea of what uh, you know? How prevalent dementia is in our in our community, and and the direction that it's taking. Yeah, so it definitely is becoming more and more. Uh, there are more and more uh, people being diagnosed. Uh, in twenty twenty, there were about half a million Canadians that that were diagnosed with dementia, and by twenty thirty, we're expecting a million. So that's doubling, and then by twenty fifty, we're going up um, three hundred percent. So it's it's. Basically, it's because our population is aging. The, the biggest risk factor for dementia is age. Um, and for every person diagnosed, you know, there's all of the other people around them that are impacted. So we, we typically say there's between 12 and 14 people that are impacted when someone has a dementia diagnosis. Wow. That, so that, that paints a very interesting picture if we're talking just for round figures at some point, a million people being affected by it. And then we got 12 to 14 people around them. That's a significant portion of the Canadian population impacted in one way or another. Um, with dementia, 
I, yeah, that's uh, that's significant. Let's let's maybe talk a little bit about the process. If if there's a good chance that they're going to have, you, you know, people will be impacted by this. Maybe tell us a little bit about what what the process is and how it impacts people. And um, again, just give us sort of the, the framework and the setup of what people can use to say, hey, maybe this is happening. Yeah, it's often, it's it's a gradual process for most people. Um, and it's not always just memory. So a lot of people think, oh, you know, I forgot where my car keys are. I wonder if I have dementia. There, there is some age-related memory issues that we're, we are all going to have. Um, but dementia is more than that. It's It's, I can't remember how to make tea or... I took the bus home from the mall because I forgot that I drove there. Um, so difficulty doing regular things. And, and um, one friend of mine, her dad had dementia and had no other symptoms other than that he lost the ability to speak and, and then gradually progressed into other things. So it's, it, can be, it can look like a lot of different things and, and memory loss can also not be because of dementia. So it's, if you suspect or you're worried, you should, you should get checked out. And unfortunately, the stigma of dementia prevents a lot of people from doing that because as they start to be worried about it, they start to think, oh, I, I don't want to get checked. I don't want to know. I don't want people to know. Um, so that's something that we're, we're working quite hard with is to try and bust some of that stigma around the disease. That point uh, alone is very interesting because, um, Kim, my mom, uh, I, I don't think she ever admitted at any point, and she's beyond the point of being able to, to do that now, but I don't think she ever admitted that she uh, she had a problem, other than I I'm forgetful every once in a while, and that did create some challenges uh, for my brother and I um, in terms of 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 how we can uh, how we could support her through that. Uh, is that a typical experience? And and if so, uh, your thoughts as to as to how people that are perhaps facing that particular stigma and a person pushing back against it, what do you do? It's hard, and I'll share. My mom was exactly the same way. Her mother had dementia, so she watched it. She knew what was coming, and did not want. And the same. I don't think she ever actually said, has not still to this day said that she has dementia. Um, it's it's really tough because you want to respect their um, autonomy as as people, but you know that you need to step in and do something because you know things things. It's a declining disease, and it's not going to get better. That caregiving role is really tough. What What about um, so? Let's let's assume somebody does say, okay, it, I, I I've got a problem here, so they're prepared to to think through it. I'm I'm curious as to uh, your your thoughts as to how people start to prepare uh, for this, as you call it, a declining disease, because it really is, right? And sometimes it's more you know, it can be quick, and sometimes it can be long. But so if somebody now gets the diagnosis or they suspect they've got this, what 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 do they do? Definitely start with your, your family doctor um, and then get support. Call the Alzheimer's Society wherever you are and just say, you know, you don't have to have a diagnosis to call them. Just call them and say, this is where we're at in the process. What can, what can you help us with? What, what do we need to know? Um, because there, there, is, there are certainly things you can do to prepare. Financial planning is, is one of those things. Um, advanced care planning is another. So you need to start talking about what, what you want your life to look like. Where do you want to live? Um, if you need more care than you're, then you can have at home. Um, start to, they're hard, hard conversations to have. And, and the folks at the Alzheimer's Society are great at helping, helping families to have those conversations. What do you think about that? Um, I mean, we, we definitely have clients that we deal with, um, with parents, mm -hmm. dementia, um, financial planning, 
sort of uh, a, a, an area that you know you and I have discussed with uh, with various clients in my own mom's uh, Lots, particular yeah. situation. So, your thoughts around that? Well, I think that you, you we talk to clients of different stages of that. If we're helping, right, and it could be they're already in care. Yeah. But I think the bigger one for this conversation, especially, is if there is care facilities out there, what what are there? What are those going to cost you, and what is that? Is it going to affect the whole family? Do mm-hmm. other people need to step up with mm-hmm. some of these care? Um, you know, can maybe give us a, a couple of highlights on what you start to look at when a family comes to you, especially on a financial perspective. I think yeah, there's actually a report that just came out this week that was shocking and pretty scary about what what's going to look like in Canada. Um, so most caregivers are women and they're between the ages of 45 and 54. Um, those are prime income earning years. Um, this report actually said that every Canadian needs to be prepared to be a caregiver, um, which is pretty shocking actually. Uh, the, the full-time cost of that um, in jobs in 2020 was about 235,000 full-time positions with the cost of the economy of 7.3 billion. Um, And again, we're going to double those numbers, right? So they're saying every Canadian needs to be prepared to be a caregiver. So not only do you need to prepare for the costs of the person with the the diagnosis, but caring for them um, until such time that they go into kind of a congregate living is, is something that we all need to start considering as well. Yeah, I'm sort of right in that sweet spot, you know, at 54, uh, mom's here, my brother's in Edmonton, so I guess I'm the primary caregiver for her, um, but I would say that we're in, she's in a very, very good facility here, shouldn't call it a facility, it's a long-term, it's a long-term care home that, that has um, a terrific program that evolves with people um, as they progress uh, on their um I guess in this decline that that ultimately we're going to see with uh, with dementia, and that takes a lot of pressure off. Uh, as you know, I I, mm-hmm. I talk about this a lot, uh, but that that comes at a cost, right? There, then this is where the financial planning and the preparation that a that a family um, that is going through this has to address, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that dementia isn't the only issue that Canadians will have to be caregivers for aging parents on, but it's going to have a significant uh, role to play, I think, in that. And Kim Brundrett, who is the Collective Impact Lead for Dementia uh, Network Calgary, has been good enough to stick around for uh, for another segment. Kim, just before we went to commercial break, I talked about my experience watching my mom as she progressed with her dementia, um, and I wanted to be the primary caregiver. Uh, my dad had had passed away not long before that, so she was living with me. But you know, it became very apparent to me that um, although I could probably take care of her physical needs, uh, I, you know, I'm not, uh, it, it was pretty apparent that I couldn't take care of her social needs. And so because she couldn't get out and she couldn't get around and I'm at work and the kids are at school, uh, there was large portions of the day where, where mom really was just isolated all by herself and, um, and doing some research, you know, be, and, and just watching her go through that, that was not a, a good position for her to be in. And I would just like your comments on that, because I think there's a lot of guilt attached to the caregiving role about thinking about um, uh, about moving a parent or a loved one into a into a facility that you know it's it's not at home and I certainly experienced that I can't be alone I'm curious as to your thoughts uh, around that particular issue yeah and I mean no one 
wants to go into a home when, when you're young and you're active and you look at, at them and you think, oh, that's not where I want to be. Um, but in many cases, it, it is the best place um, because they can provide that um, ongoing socialization and, and isolation is one of the biggest risk factors for getting dementia in the first place. Um, because having conversations, um, you really use a lot of different parts of your brain. Um, and is isolation just, it, it causes a faster decline for people once once they do have the disease. So um, it's important to, to understand that and, and to know that um, there, there probably will be a time when, some, when the person will need to move into some kind of congregate care living situation. And like you said, the guilt on, on caregivers is high um, and, and it really shouldn't be because in, in many cases, you're, you're actually doing the best thing possible for them. That's the conclusion that I had to come to. And it, it was a difficult, in, in my own mind, it was difficult to do that, right? You've got that, you've got that guilty feeling about that. But I have to tell you, and for anybody that's listening that perhaps is going through that right now, uh, my mom has never been in a better position. Like she it's not going to get better. Dementia is not going to get better. Um, there's no cure for it at this particular point, as we know. But she is safe and she is happy. And that takes a ton of pressure, right? So it's gone from that guilty feeling of maybe, you know, she needs this care to watching her flourish in an environment that's safe and, and healthy and, mm -hmm. and socially engaged. Yeah. Kim, I, my personal situation is, I guess, slightly different in the um, in the sense that we have aging parents and in-laws out of province and, you know, through the pandemic, you mentioned socialization being yeah. an issue and we've been going through some other ailments of, you know, some acute stress and, and whatnot and starting to wonder if it's just age or not. So the question that our family's having is how do you start to go through to establish that baseline and understand that and have the conversation with your loved ones that, you know, we may have to look and, and to see that because there are other ailments. So have you seen that as a uh, roadblock? That's hard. That's hard, especially if you're out of province, right? Because <laughs> you're, you're not there to notice. And I will, I will tell you that after holidays, um, so Christmas, for example, that's when the Alzheimer's Society are the busiest because people go home, they visit their parents and they're like, oh, something's not right. Something's, something's funny here. Um, and, and that's, you know, when, when we start to see a huge increase in the number of, of calls for support. Um, it is tough. And, and it's, it's those things. It's not just memory, right? So, hey, mom, can, can you make me a cup of tea? And, and if mom's kind of looking around wondering, uh, I don't really know what to do with the kettle, or you're finding the butter is in where the laundry soap is instead of in the fridge or, or some, you know, just some odd little things. It, it's definitely, those are definitely red flags. Um, and sometimes it is very difficult to, to get an assessment depending on, on where they, where they live. Um, but it is, you can call the family doctor and, and just say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm not there, but I have some concerns. Um, you know, please, please check that out for me. It's a, it's a tough one though, again, depending on, you know, if the person you're thinking about is open to that, to that diagnosis, right. As we talked earlier, it's that, that's such a tricky part of this. Uh, you know, this disease um, and the stigma, as Kim had mentioned in the last segment, makes it, it can make it very, very difficult yeah. for, for families and for the person that's, you know, suffering from this or affected by this to, to, to deal with it. Um, Kim, I've got one last uh, uh, area I want to explore with you that has been helpful for me with dementia and all the research I, I've done communicating with my mom um, 
was an interesting exercise as she progressed in her uh, dementia because she became obviously less aware of what's happening on, on a day-to-day basis. And what, you know, she would, she would tell me things that it would turn out to not be true. And, you know, you couldn't, I don't know what to believe, what not to believe that whole thing. But I, in, in some, in my investigations, I came across a, a program called the butterfly program. You may be aware of it. It was developed out of the UK, but the notion of it is essentially that they're, you know, a person as they progress further and further with dementia becomes less and less logical and more and more emotional. And so you need to communicate more on an emotional level versus a logical level. And what I found is I would, the, the conflict that I was having is I would, at, at periods of time, I'd be correcting my mom. Oh, no, mom, you, you don't live in Winnipeg anymore. You live here. But mom is convinced she lives in Winnipeg. And, and it, was, it was a terrible experience to go through. And what I realized in, in all of this investigation is now I can accept that wherever my mom is, I live where she is, right? It's not about correcting her that she's not where she was born back in Winnipeg. And she didn't just have a visit with her mom, who's been you know gone for 50 years. It's about, well, great, how's granny doing and what's going on? And, and then we have a much, much more um, enjoyable conversation and it doesn't create a lot of stress for her. And that light bulb going off or, or my investigation around that program really was a godsend. But I, I'm curious as to your, your thoughts and your guidance for people who are experiencing that. It's, it's 100% true. We, we just say you need to meet them where they're at. Wherever they are is where you need to go. Um, but that's hard, right? So, so my, my mom was to mention, my dad, um, it was very hard for him. He wanted to correct her because he did not want her to leave him, right? He, he wanted her to be where he is. Um, so there's, there's that emotional side for, for the caregivers as well to say, no, I don't want this to be happening. Please, like, you're not there. You're here. <laughs> and it's, it's hard, but it is relieves so much stress once you can kind of flip that switch and, and in your own mind, um, and just agree to be, meet them where they are. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think maybe, because we're running out of time on this segment, I think we, we leave it there. But I think that has been the, the biggest change in my relationship with my mom, when I got it through my head, and I sort of looked at the principles of that to, to as Kim said, it's just, just be where they're at. And you can have a wonderful time, and you can explore the past, and you can relive wonderful moments. Um, but if you if you get into a position where you're trying to correct them and bring you bring them to you, it's going to be a very very difficult, painful process to go through. Kim, thank you very much for uh, for all of the input and the content. I think this is all really valuable, and there's no question that more and more of us as Canadians are going to be touched by this at some point. And so education around this area, I think, is going to be critical. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Well, we've been joined by Kim uh, Brundrit, Collective Impact Lead of the Dementia Network Calgary. You go online and search them. And if you need some support and help that, uh, you know, they can be there uh, as part of the resource for you. One of the most frequent questions I think we get uh, from people that are moving into retirement is, when do I take my CPP Mm -hmm. and OAS? Right? Do I take it early? Do I wait to 65 or do I defer it? Now, I suppose to some extent the answer is, uh, it. you know, there's some unique factors for each family. But we've got a terrific guest here to help us walk through the math. Um, And I I think uh, he's a longtime recurring guest of the show, Fred Batiste. He's the author of Retirement Income for Life. Um, And uh, I think Fred's position has changed a little bit on this. But but before we get to that, Fred, first of all, welcome to the show. Welcome back. Hey, hey guys. Good to see you. Fred, it is, Dave is right. We get the question, I would say daily, and we're talking with clients and and individuals. And, you know, I would say it is the main question 
And it is a big part of uh, individuals' long-term financial planning as well. So, and, and they want the, the correct answer, which makes sense for them. Uh, and I know that you recently wrote that article in the Globe Mail about OAS pension payments and whether or not retirees should defer until 70, the max that they can. So should they? And what's your thoughts around that? Well, let's first of all, like uh, dismiss the uh, situation where somebody uh, uh, is is already over the OAS clawback limit. So they have all their OAS clawback anyway because they have too much income. Uh, they're receiving between age 65 and 70. Let's say, for example, a doctor is still working. Should he get OAS? Obviously not because he'll get nothing of, of that money. So let's forget that situation. Let's look at the more si- typical situation where someone's got maybe somewhere in the mid-50, uh, mid-five uh, figures in terms of overall income. So the clawback doesn't really affect them. Uh, they they need uh, the, the income that they're going to be getting from OAS and CPP. Should they be doing it? I've always felt that uh, CPP deferral is pretty much a no-brainer um, unless you have some reason to think you have a very short lifespan or alternatively, uh, you just don't have the assets to hold out and actually use other income until age 70, then uh, CPP uh, deferral has always made sense. And that's because the, uh, the, the bump you get, the 42% more, more, more income or more pension at age 70 versus 65 just makes it so, so attractive. And in fact, it's more than just uh, uh, 42%, as I've uh, long uh, uh, pointed out, that if uh, uh, salaries go up faster than wage than uh, than prices, then it may actually be more like 50% higher at 70 versus uh, 65 in real terms. So that's always made sense. OAS, I, I've always been ambivalent about because, first of all, the bump isn't 42%, it's only 36%. Um, and, and so it's less attractive for that reason. Um, and also, uh, if I've in spite of my uh, eloquent, compelling ways, if I haven't been able to persuade anybody to defer CPP until age 70, I figured there was zero chance I was going to persuade anybody to defer OAS until 70, so I just haven't bothered up until now. Then what happened was the world changed a couple of years ago. The big change was uh, as a result of uh, this pandemic, uh, I think indirectly, government started spending money like crazy around the world. Uh, Justin Trudeau, no less than anybody else. And now, a couple of years later, we're seeing uh, rampant inflation, which maybe should have been obvious at the time, but maybe we had no choice. I don't know. I won't second guess. But the point, the fact is, we do have rampant inflation again. And I, I had thought inflation was pretty well dead, that we could expect it to be 1% or 2% a year, and it wouldn't be an issue. And so that would be a reason uh, to be trying to, uh, to maximize your OAS income. But, however, it's up now. It, we have inflation at 8 or 9%. And maybe it'll go down, but now it's raised the specter that it will rear its ugly head from time to time in the future. And if that's going to be the case, then that's suggesting you ought to be trying to maximize any source of income you've got that is, that is fully inflation protected, which is going to mean CPP and old age security. You should maximize it. Get as much as you can from those sources uh, because you never know when inflation is going to be uh, uh, rising up again. Yeah, and maybe just walk through for our viewers and our listeners a little bit about the OAS protection, or sorry, the uh, inflation protection that both OAS and, C- and CPP provide. Yeah, oh, so both CPP and OAS give 100% inflation protection. Um, in the case of CPP, your, your, uh, your pension is uh, going to be indexed to inflation on, on an annual basis. It goes up every, every, every January. In the case of old age security, it goes up actually every quarter uh, based upon the, uh, the change in CPI. Uh, for the for, for the pre- previous quarter, um, so it's even even better than that. 
so they both have that, that protection. And I think, Fred, one of the important points you make in the article also is that <clears throat> um, is that the federal government, in this case, the Canadian federal government, is a um, a credible source of inflation protection, right? It's not that you could just accept with everything that says it's inflation protected is, but through its uh, through its taxation powers that this is actually, you know, this is true inflation protection for both of those benefits. Is that is that a fair interpretation of your comment? That is a fair interpretation. There now there are little there there are some nuances. They're a little different between CPP and old age security. In the case of um, of uh, CPP, um, it's actually a more like a target benefit plan than a pure defined benefit plan. So there's always a chance that you know, the government will say we can't afford these promises. We have to cut back a little bit. The way we might cut back is maybe pay you a little, say a smaller CPP pension, or we'll maybe not give you full in indexation. If you think about it though, if we end up having a funding problem in, in the CPP, um, which I think the chances of it are fairly, fairly minimal in anyone's lifetime, but let's say we did have a funding problem, what would the government do? Uh, given the buying, uh, the, uh, the, the voting clout of seniors, they probably wouldn't be taking it out on, on the backs of people who are already age 65 or over. They'll uh, still give them their, their full CPP protection, their full inflation protection, I should say. And what they would probably do is they would uh, maybe uh, change the retirement age for future recipients of, C of old age security. That's one thing they might do. Uh, they might actually maybe have uh, increased tax taxes in order to pay for it. Those are the kind of things they would do with old age security. With CPP, uh, they would probably just raise the uh, CPP contributions, once again, for the active members and without affecting anybody who's actually retired already. So that's why I'm saying the protection is pretty much ironclad. Now, I'm, I'm going to just take you back to one point you made, because, Rob, a question that we often get asked uh, is, from a lot of retirees even now, is, is is the CPP, as an example, is it sustainable? Like there are questions about whether or not this is sustainable. And as an actuary, I'd like you to sort of set the record straight as to where you think the CPP and, and the payments uh, are for people that are retiring now, today. I, I think I think the kind of pension plan is, is totally sustainable. And the reason I say that is because uh, there, at one point in time, 25 years ago, it was still a uh, pay-as-you-go system, which is kind of like a Ponzi scheme. It kind of depends upon new entrants coming in and, and putting in money into the system so that they can uh, pay the pensions of uh, pensioners. Um, but that's changed now. It's a partially funded plan at this point. And because it's partially funded, they now do 75-year projections. Those 75-year projections take everything into account. That mortality uh, might improve, people, that people will live longer. Uh, that you know, unemployment will rise or fall, uh, fertility rates will change. But it, what I, my, my point is, is that it's a very sophisticated kind of projection that they do. And under all those projections, it shows that the system is sustainable. And if uh, the worst comes to worst, and let's say uh, we, uh, we can't just, uh, uh, that, that they do have to end up you know, raising contributions a little bit or cutting benefits. Uh, we've seen the experience in uh, Quebec uh, where they have worse demographics, lower fertility rates, uh, lower um, immigration and all that, where what they've done is they've, they've increased uh, contribution rates and to make it sustainable again. So that's going to be the situation, I think. And yeah, there's a, a possibility at some point in the future that they might decide they can't actually uh, achieve the kind of investment returns they hope to achieve. And so they're going to have to raise rates a little bit. Cutting benefits, I just don't see that in the cards. For It, it just wouldn't make any sense. 
Fred, I want to thank you for taking the time, setting the record straight, uh, giving us the straight talk. We always appreciate that um, and what the math supports. So thanks for joining us again. It's always great to be on. Thanks, guys. Been joined by Fred Batiste. He's the author of Retirement Income for Life. You can Google that, go to Amazon, uh, get your copy of that book. Uh, Fred is, uh, uh, has been a strong contributor to the show over the years and, uh, and some very good advice. Now, Rob, um, the one thing, there were a couple of caveats that, that Fred talked about. So, you know, not everybody should defer. There are some conditions, shortened lifespan. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you need a certain threshold of savings to get you through the period. If you retire right. at 65, as an example, you've got to support yourself to 70 before some of those kick in. That could create a problem or it could deplete uh, savings from a from a legacy perspective. So, uh, you know, the, the rules of thumb, I think, are pretty clear there. Just make sure that you do a proper financial plan for what your family's goals and objectives are to ensure that they all match up. And we're going to we're going to talk about that process at our upcoming seminar. You got it. Join us Tuesday, September 20th, 7 p.m. This will be in person at the Four Point Sheraton Hotel. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. And thanks for tuning in for another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. On behalf of Rob Geary, myself, Dave Popowich, we look forward to chatting with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.